My name is Nathan Bingaman, and it's good to be here with you today. Uh, I get to preach uh, this, this Sunday on a parable from Luke 16, the parable of the unjust steward. Um, so if you'd like to turn into your Bibles to Luke 16, um, but I'm going to read this uh, parable, and then we'll get into the sermon. So Luke 16, uh, verses 1 through 15. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let's pray. Mighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel of Luke. Thank you for the parables of Jesus that we have, that we can receive your wisdom and the teaching of Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us apply this to our lives, that we may live differently, that we may love differently, um, and that our witness of your goodness and your glory would increase, um, and that others would know you um, because of their relationships with us. Uh, Lord, I pray that this, this message would uh, encourage us where it needs to encourage us, and I pray that it would convict us where it needs to convict us. And I pray that we would uh, live differently and relate differently um, in light of your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, it is my privilege to preach on a parable in a sermon series on parables. Um, it's been... Uh, a joy to listen to James preach through different parables from the Gospels in the New Testament. And some of them have been from the book of Matthew. Some of them have been from the book of Luke. Uh, I chose this one from the book of Luke to uh, preach about. I uh, was drawn to this parable. I've always thought it's kind of uh, an obscure puzzle, trying to figure out what exactly the meaning was. Um, and I sort of assumed that I knew what that main point was. I thought it was mainly something about being a good steward in your life. Uh, but as I studied the parable this time, it took me a little bit deeper and uh, gave me a message that I didn't expect. So I hope it does the same for you. Um, the, the picture that I had in my mind is, is the parables of Jesus are sort of like gobstoppers. So if you don't know, um, a gobstopper is sort of this hard candy um, they sell in America, I think, and maybe other places, but a gobstopper is sort of the opposite of chewing gum. Chewing gum is something that you can just uh, get to chewing right away, and it's soft, and you can chew it for a really long time, um, and you get the flavor by, by chewing it. A gobstopper is a hard candy that's sort of the opposite. 
it it's it's in the name it prevents you from from chewing on it, it prevents you from cracking it with your teeth um, because it's really really hard and the parables of Jesus are are very difficult to understand sometimes and this parable is is no exception so I hope that I, I'm going to preach a sermon on this parable but I hope that you take time to meditate and contemplate the, the meaning of this parable and the meaning of all the, the parables that we hear and, and, and read in the Gospels, and that as we live our lives and as we mature, we come to newer and deeper understandings of Jesus' message. I think that uh, this parable being in the Gospel of Luke is part of the author's strategy for helping us understand what Jesus' message was. This parable has many um, important conceptual connections with other parables that James has already preached about. And maybe that will kind of come out in the sermon and we'll see those connections. But I think that this parable as well is unique to Luke and helps us understand what the message of Luke is. So today I would like to give us just a snapshot, uh, a picture of the theology of Luke and how Luke uses uh, Jesus' words and Jesus' actions um, to show what Jesus' message was. And I want to present the parable to you, and I would like to suggest how we may apply its truth to our lives. Um, even though I picked this parable and I thought I knew this parable, um, there were a lot of things that God revealed to me through this parable. And I think part of my attraction to the parable is actually the fact that I don't understand it yet. And so I was drawn to it, and I wanted to get to know it more. But as I learned its truth, I began to learn and, and see more clearly some of my failures and my sins um, as, I, as I realize the, the truth here in this parable. I recently came across a quote from James Denia, a Scottish, a Scottish theologian, and he said, no man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. So I try to remind myself and I try to remind my audience each time I preach that preaching the gospel and glorifying God requires that I humble myself and realize the sin and the evil uh, in myself. And in order to be redeemed and to be sanctified, um, I come closer and closer to God's truth and I meditate on God's truth so that it can be having an effect on me and it can be changing me. So let's begin to look at the passage. Um, here, verse 1, uh, chapter 16 of Luke, it says, he also said to the disciples. So he also said to the disciples, tells us that um, Jesus has been talking. And as Jesus has been talking in Luke, there are different audiences or different levels of association and closeness to Jesus. Um, when I just look back uh, across the page, um, I could see that there were crowds are mentioned in chapter 14. There are, is another group in Luke, tax collectors and sinners, in chapter 15. And then also in chapter 15, Pharisees and scribes, scribes were mentioned. And now, in chapter 16, we see mentioned the disciples. And this gets us into our theology of Luke. So I think that in these crowds and in these audiences of Jesus, we begin to see some themes that Luke is emphasizing to help us understand Jesus' message. Now, Luke himself, uh, who wrote the book of Luke and most likely wrote the book of Acts, um, is likely referred to in Colossians 4 as a physician. And um, sort of historians of the scripture and scholars have agreed that we can think of the author of Luke and Acts as a physician, um, which is interesting because one of the most important explanatory passages of Luke has Jesus using a metaphor about physicians to describe his ministry and the purpose of his ministry. So I think Luke would have really seized on that um, to show what Jesus' message was. Um, and another theme that we see in Luke is not just about physicians, but is about tax collectors. So there's something very interesting that's happening in the book of Luke about tax collectors. In Luke 5, um, Jesus actually calls a tax collector which is very interesting because Jesus calls uh, fishermen famously. Uh, we know that there are these disciples uh, of Jesus, and he calls them, and we, we don't think that much about it. Um, but in Luke 5.27, Jesus 
calls a tax collector named Levi to follow me. So when Jesus says, follow me, in Luke or, or Mark or the Gospels, that is the call to discipleship. And Jesus makes this call, follow me, to a tax collector named Levi. And when Levi goes and associates with this tax collector, the Pharisees and the, the scribes in chapter 5 uh, are grumbling. And they wonder and they ask Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers them and says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is uh, sort of a theme verse for Luke. Um, Jesus's ministry is to those who need him. And he uses the metaphor of a physician and Luke likely a physician himself, would have picked up on that, and that becomes a theme of Luke. Uh, Jesus is known, and there's a controversy and scandal, uh, Jesus is known for hanging out with tax collectors and those who have been labeled sinners. Again, in Luke 7, there is a controversy as people think about uh, John the Baptist's ministry, and Jesus actually defends John the Baptist. Um, in Luke 7, 28, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And uh, Luke goes on to describe the reception of the audience to this message. And it says, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, Luke emphasizes tax collectors in verse 29, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So we see very early on in Jesus' ministry, the tax collectors who had gone to repent and gone to be baptized by John received Jesus' message. They were early adopters of Jesus' message because they understood and needed uh, Jesus. They needed that redemption in their life. And Jesus doesn't relent. Jesus doesn't give up. So we can trace this argument and theme of the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes and experts, on the other hand, and what Jesus is saying to each of these audiences. In Luke 15, um, Jesus explains the relationship with the parable of the prodigal son, a very famous parable. And we often interpret that to see the, the firstborn son, who isn't a prodigal, as reflecting the audience of the Pharisees. And then we see the prodigal son as representing in this parable someone who's like a tax collector or someone labeled a sinner. And now what we're gonna look at is Luke 16, which continues this dialogue. So we have a parable of the unjust steward that we're going to look at, which is about how to be shrewd like a rich man. But the rest of chapter 16 is about the parable of poor man, Lazarus, and the rich man in the afterlife. So there is this dialogue and conversation going on in Luke about tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and, and those who knew the law and were religious people. So we have to recognize here is that Jesus is uh, a counterintuitive thinker or has a counterintuitive message. You would have thought if the Holy Messiah came to the people of Israel and was giving a message, he would be on the side of and he would associate with the Pharisees and distance himself from the sinners. But we don't see him doing that. So there, there was this quote I found. It said, in an epic exchange between two billionaires, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, said, Peter Thiel is a contrarian, first and foremost. You just have to remember that contrarians are usually wrong. And Peter Thiel is a famous investor. He made lots of money investing in Facebook. And so Peter Thiel has to defend his honor, and he responds and says, contrarians may be mostly wrong, but when they get it right, they get it really right. And why well, I think that our message here is that Jesus always got it really right. And what I mean by that is Jesus is always making a very nuanced and specific message to his audience. Um, if he's talking to a tax collector, it's gonna look different, uh, it's gonna sound different than when he's talking to a Pharisee. 
um, when he's talking to his disciples. And so Jesus has a very uh, uh, detailed message, a very precise message for whom he's talking to. And that means that we, when we encounter the text, when we come to the Gospels, we have to take our time and make sure that we don't skip over Jesus' message. We have to make sure that we don't just, oh, if I look at you know, the parable of the unjust manager, that's about managing your money well. Okay, next, move on. Chapter 17, what does that one say? Um, that's sort of what I did, I think. Uh, when I was thinking about what parable I wanted to preach on, I thought this one would be a good one because I like talking about stewardship. But when I began to digest and sort of study, I found it, it was about stewardship, but it was actually even more precise. And there was a very specific message that God had for me through this text um, that when I slowed down and began to study it, um, I saw how deep it went. So we'll see that in, in this parable, uh, relationships are very important to Jesus. And part of what Jesus is, is doing uh, that we see in the book of Luke is building relationships. And it just baffles the Pharisees and these religious people. Um, and so part of this parable is understanding how important making relationships are. So let's uh, get to talking about the parable itself. Um, to summarize what happens here is, is we have uh, some kind of manager, some kind of a steward who's been given a trust, who's been given money by a rich owner, a rich master, and he has squandered his money. He has squandered the possessions, and word has got back. Someone tattled on him to the boss, and now he's in big trouble because before he gets fired, he has to give an account of his books so that the rich man, the owner, can take those books and give them to whoever the new manager is going to be, whoever the new employee is going to be. So this, the steward, this manager, has to make a shrewd decision. How am I going to survive? I don't want to go back to a blue-collar job. I don't want to go back to having to exhaust myself and, and work um, the physical labor and, and do something that I can't do. Um, but I'm also too ashamed to beg because I was this rich, um, rich guy's manager. I was in charge of the money. Um, it's too much of an embarrassment to go and have to beg for money. That just is a double shame. So he comes with, up with this idea of how he's going to make friends. Um, now, uh, classically, there are different categories of friendship. And the point of this parable is not to say that the, the unjust manager um, was honest to goodness trying to make friends because he was lonely. These were friendships of convenience for him. He wanted to make friends help someone out so they would help him back. He was going to scratch their back, they were going to scratch his. Um, there's this idea um, in the business world of the revolving door. So if you have someone who works for a consulting firm or something and they do a really good job, um, what they're going to do is they're going to help their friends out in, in the different sectors and in in different uh, companies. So if they retire from their job, or if they get fired from their job, they can move right on to their friend's company, and their friend will hire them on and take care of them. So this is the idea. This is the dynamic we see going on here. The manager needs friends. He needs a place to land. And he squandered his money, so he needs someone to, to help him out. Someone to help him out. And I think that an important point of this parable is that this is a second chance, okay? The money manager has already squandered his money. He's already wasted money. So he's in a very desperate situation. Um, and he is forced to use his shrewdness to solve the problem. He is forced to use his shrewdness to continue to make a living somehow. And what we see uh, this money manager doing is he goes to those who owe his boss and he cuts their debt. He reduces their debt of what they owe. And I thought about this, and I tried to dig in and, and wonder exactly what's going on here. Um, some people talk about, uh, some scholars or commentators say that he's cutting the interest. He might have been charging exorbitant interest, or maybe his boss made him charge um, too much interest, and so he was getting rid of the interest. Um, he may have just been trying to reduce the debt so that those debtors would pay him his boss's money. And that was his golden parachute, was stealing the resources that were owed to his boss. But the bottom line here is that this is about 
debt forgiveness. What the money manager decides to do with his boss's debtors is forgive part of their debt. And I think part of the valence, part of the meaning of this parable is that forgiveness is a useful thing. Forgiveness is something that, that greases the gears of human relationships. Even though this, this manager is, is not a religious person, he's not a, a righteous person necessarily, we see how his shrewd tactic is to forgive someone their debt. And now we've already seen a parable of the unforgiving servant. Um, and we've seen in, in different parables the way that forgiveness and debt might work. And I think part of the message of this parable is that forgiveness is something that we need to use, something that goes in our toolbox of making relationships. Sometimes forgiveness is the, the most shrewd thing that you can do. Actually forgive someone, you let them not owe all that they owe. And even in a, a unrighteous context, a secular context, forgiveness is a good move for this guy. So I think that is uh, very telling, and it's a very teachable moment here. This guy is in a desperate state. He's not really making real friends, but his decision is to forgive these people their debt. So the point uh, uh, of this parable, what we see is that this, this manager shows uh, shrewdness, what's talked about as, as shrewdness, um, or maybe wisdom in, in different translations. And this idea is looking to the future. This guy was looking to his future. It wasn't looking so good. And he needed to make moves. He needed to make friends um, and give himself a way out, give himself a way out in, in this bad situation. So I want to talk about verse 8 and 9 because these are the pivotal verses here um, for this passage. Um, Jesus gets done telling this parable. And so in verse 8 and 9, he says this, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So these are some hard verses, and these are the verses that I hadn't considered before, that I sort of needed to, to digest. These were the gobstopper of this parable for me. Um, I think that these later verses, uh, 10 through 13, that we'll, we'll talk about are, are common sense wisdom about how to manage money and how not to worship money. But verses 8 and 9 are very uh, hard to interpret and hard to understand. And I think that there's more to understand about these verses than even I'll talk about today. So I think we need to continue uh, studying this passage, studying this parable. But I want to give you some helpful things um, from these verses that I think will speak to us, that have spoken to me, and will we'll make the point of this parable. So verse 9 first. Uh, this is sort of the crux of the parable. And there's a question. Who are the friends who will receive you into eternal dwellings? Jesus says this hard saying. Um, what does this mean? So I, I did some research, and actually, Augustine, the, the famous theologian, he does a sermon on Luke 16, 9. And he refers to the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25. Um, Anglican theologian Charles Ellicott says this about the parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, we commonly speak of the concluding portion of Matthew 25 as the parable of the sheep and the goats. But it is obvious from its very beginning that it passes beyond the region of parable into that of divine realities, and that the sheep and the goats form only a subordinate and parenthetic illustration. Um, so what he's saying here, and I think this is true about other parables as well, when you, once you start to get towards the end of a parable of Jesus, Jesus has already begun explaining, and he's already begun t dovetailing and, and sort of working the parable into the reality of God's world. Um, and so the parable of the sheep and goats is, is almost, uh, it's half a parable and almost uh, a reality, and Jesus is describing what will happen. So um, Jesus says in this parable, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
So we've seen uh, this phrase before, actually, or this word and this concept before, inherit, inheritance. This is a very important scriptural concept. Um, we saw this phrase in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and this expert in the law comes up and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the Pharisees, or the people who knew what scripture said, knew there was this promise of being able to inherit eternal life. Um, so there was some way of qualifying or earning a spot or being worthy of an inheritance from God. And that is a great promise. That is a pretty glorious promise. So you can understand why those who knew about it would be very concerned about it. And so Jesus works that into this parable of the sheep and goats. And the parable of sheep and goats, to sum up, is the, the sheep are worthy of inheriting the kingdom because they did good to others. And in their doing good to others and, and having love and compassion on others, it was as if they had love and compassion for the king, for Jesus. And vice versa with the goats, those who didn't show love and compassion to those who needed it, it is as if they did not show love and compassion to Jesus. And this is the parable. So we see that uh, giving charity and giving help to someone else is very, very important in the economy of the kingdom. And there's actually an interesting point here in Matthew 25. Uh, when Jesus is talking to the sheep in verse 40, he says, um, whatever you did to uh, these brothers and sisters of mine, you did unto me. And then when he's talking to the goats, he says in verse 44, he takes it a step further. He says, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, it is as if you did not do that for me. So I think there's a movement here of where giving charity and giving help are part of our evangelization and part of our discipleship of others. As we give and as we show compassion, as we show charity, that brings others to saving faith in God and, and following Jesus. As we demonstrate Jesus' love, other people are drawn closer to Jesus. And it's, it's as if we are serving Jesus directly. So there is uh, an interesting point that we're building and we're seeing in this parable where giving charity or helping someone out is not just a, an optional thing that you can do. It's not like a, a, a super Christian thing to do. It is the main course of what we are supposed to be doing. And if we're living like Jesus and following Jesus as we give and as we love, um, that's bringing people closer to God. That's bring, bringing people closer to following Jesus. And we see in, in, in both of these uh, that there is a reward for helping those people out. And I think that's one of the counterintuitive points uh, of this parable is that in this, this physical world or in this current age, um, the people that we think we need to help out might be the ones who are helping us out in the next life, in the next age. So those whom we have helped and, and shown mercy to will be uh, those who give us a reward or give us praise and give us affirmation in the next age. Now on to verse 8. So this is the verse that is really uh, the clincher. This one is uh, centered around this idea of shrewdness. Now the word here, shrewdness in, in the Greek, um, is sometimes translated wisdom, sometimes translated cunning. It depends on the context. Um, but in, in Greek, uh, this word means uh, wisdom, looking ahead, wisdom towards the future, making a plan, seeing a situation, and knowing what you need to do to get through to the other side of that situation. Um, what's very interesting about this word, this word and concept in scripture is that it's the same word used of the serpent in Genesis 3. In, in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, it's the same exact word that's used to describe the serpent. And so we see that this word wisdom, shrewdness, is, is a neutral word depending on the context. Um, it can be a morally good thing or a morally bad thing. And many Christians know that Jesus is, has said, be shrewd as serpents and pure as doves. Of course, if you know the Old Testament, to be shrewd as a serpent means to be the most shrewd, to be as shrewd as possible. And Jesus says that on purpose there in Matthew 10, be shrewd as serpents and pure as doves. But this word is actually used closer to Luke 16 and Luke 12, 
which is another uh, linchpin of the message of Luke. Um, Jesus is talking with the disciples, and he's explaining a lot. Um, but he says this. Um, the Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So this goes far to explain our current parable in chapter 16. In, in chapter 12, Jesus says, the steward who is faithful and wise will inherit the possessions of the Lord, will inherit these uh, things that the Pharisees and those who studied the scripture expected to inherit. And what I love is that faithful and wise are bound together. There are two qualities of a good manager, of the trustworthy manager that God is looking for, that God hopes to reward, faithful and wise. And I think this really preaches because Christians often focus on the faithful part. We, we write songs about it, we write, we write poems about it. Uh, we know we're supposed to be faithful, but I think we forget that we're supposed to be wise. We forget that we're supposed to be shrewd even. We forget how do I get through this situation and make it to the next stage, make it to, um, to God's presence in, in the right way and having done the right things with what he's given me charge of. How do we pass this stewardship test? We have to use wisdom. We have to use shrewdness. And so uh, Jesus is telling this message Again, in the context of, of a conversation with the Pharisees. And he's saying, you lack this. Even an unjust manager, an unrighteous manager, knows that he needs to be shrewd to get what he wants. But you Pharisees think that you just can earn eternal life. You think that you can just qualify for eternal life. You can sit back and you don't have anything else to do. Um, and you don't have to have a plan and you don't have to take action. But... This parable is telling the Pharisees and telling us that we need to be faithful and wise. God is looking for the one who is faithful and wise. I also think it's interesting what Jesus says about um, believers in verse 8. He uses this weird phrase, sons of light. And I don't want to go too much into it, but that uh, stuck out to me because I have seen that phrase used uh, another time in an important way um, in the Qumran scrolls, actually. So there is a scripture um, that's non-canonical. It's not in the New Testament, but it was a scripture used likely by uh, the Essenes, those people who um, collected the scrolls of the Dead Sea collection. And there is a, a cool scroll named the War Scroll. And it's a priestly document that describes um, the priest's uh, uniform and what priests are supposed to do. But it's in the context of this spiritual battle. And so on one side, you have the sons of light and the sons of darkness. I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I think that Jesus is using this uh, apocalyptic term. He's using this uh, end times term to describe believers and those who are supposed to be following him to show that it's what happens in the end that matters. So if you're a Pharisee and you get lazy because you think that you're doing everything right according to the law, but then what happens at the end is you're condemned because of your lack of compassion and charity, then it doesn't matter uh, all the rules that you followed during the meantime. So there is a very uh, end times focus in this parable and in most parables. Um, the parable of the, the house on the rock or the house on the sand. Um, you'll remember that one of the points is it's what happens at the end that matters. You can be comfortable in your house on the sand, but that doesn't matter because the storm will come and wash that all away. Jesus is saying the same thing here. It doesn't matter if you helped yourself and puffed yourself up during this world and this life and you distance yourself from the people you should be relating to. Because in the end, you will be condemned for that. Um, you will actually be uh, judged uh, bad or, or guilty because of a lack of love, a lack of compassion. So Jesus uh, says, sons of light, to make us think, this is what's going to happen at the end. What, what will make us survive and uh, thrive in the end and in the next age? 
So now we've come to verses 10 through 13. I think these are, are fairly self-explanatory, so I won't get into them too much, but these carry some solid wisdom about how to be a good steward. And the argument we see um, being made here is the argument of the lesser to the greater. So Jesus is making a big argument from the lesser to the greater with the unrighteous steward. And the logic goes, if even an unrighteous steward can use forgiveness and try to make friends when he needs to survive and to be shrewd, then you who know God and you're supposed to be empowered by God with love and charity, you should be using forgiveness and relationships even more. So a movement from lesser to greater. And that's what Jesus says in these verses. One who is faithful in little will also be faithful in much. And if you aren't a good steward of what God has given you and is borrowed and will be returned to God, how will you handle a reward from God that is entirely yours? These Pharisees focus of inheriting eternal life or getting something that is finally their own um, has blinded them to the fact that they're not even taking care of what God has given them in the meantime. So we see an argument from lesser to greater because God is a greater God and a greater master than money is. And we see that the Pharisees are betraying their heart in how they approach money. In verse 14, it says the Pharisees were lovers of money. I think the Pharisees are greedy and are miserly, um, holding on to their wealth, holding on to their privilege, and holding on to the compassion they could give to those who really need it, because they think God is stingy in that same way. If you'll remember, they, Pharisees think the project is to qualify or to somehow become worthy of eternal life, to inherit eternal life. So they're, they're trying to please, uh, or they're trying to make themselves look good, so that when the time comes, all of their, their resume and their qualifications will earn them eternal life. But that's not the project. That, uh, because they're so focused on building themselves up, they have forgotten what God's work actually is, which is helping the downtrodden. Remember the, the parable. It's not those who are well who need a physician. It's those who are sick. And so the Pharisees are betraying what they worship which is actually money. They kind of want to puff themselves up. They kind of want to be wealthy. And that causes a jealousy with the tax collectors who are wealthy. Um, and so their love of money is blinding them to whom they're worshiping, to who they should be worshiping. Um, because what you worship and who you worship um, will reflect in your life and how you conduct yourself. So... And th the last point I want to make is that the power of money is what you can exchange it for. Um, those who are really good with money, they know it, it's not about the money itself. Um, so it's a weird obsession to want to stack up money and to have lots of money. Because the value of money, the very value of money, is what else it can get you. Um, you can't really survive on money. You can't really drink money or eat money. It's about what that money can give you as far as food or drink. And so if you're worshiping money, it just doesn't even make sense to someone who's good with money. The principle of exchange that we see here is that money should be used to some other end, even if it's just food, even if it's just some necessity. So it, even without a theological justification, the the money uh, and accumulation of money can't be an end in itself. You can't worship money for itself. And I think that's what uh, Jesus is trying to say here and point out here. And it becomes explicit in verse 14 and 15. So the Pharisees who were lovers of money, they ridiculed um, Jesus' parable, and it sounds very counterintuitive to their mind. And Jesus says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. So this is actually a, a commonality that we see with the Good Samaritan parable. You remember that expert in law, he speaks up and he says, what can I do to, internal, to inherit eternal life? And um, what, who is my neighbor? And uh, he is seeking, it says in the text, he is seeking to justify himself. And so Jesus explicitly calls them out for that and says, you aren't trying to help others. You are trying to justify yourself. And you may fool yourself about that. 
you may fool others about that, but God isn't fooled. So God sees how your heart and your worship um, are directed in the wrong way, are directed in the wrong, uh, either a worship of money or a worship of yourself even. And that uh, use of money or that use of wealth to just make yourself look good is counter to what God is, is doing. And this uh, discussion actually continues. If you were to keep going through the chapters of Luke, um, there is the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in that second half of 16, chapter 16. Um, in Luke 18, uh, Jesus tells this parable of the humble tax collector and the prideful Pharisee. The way that uh, the humble tax collector prays is uh, in, a, in a very powerful way that uh, tears himself down and, and realizes where his faults are. And the Pharisee sounds like he's praising God, but he says, thank God that I'm not like this sinner. So the Pharisee has already labeled this person a sinner, and his prayer isn't as effective. And Luke 19 is where things really come to a head with the story of Zacchaeus. So that story is, sort of puts a cap on this whole discussion where you see um, this tax collector who's seeking out Jesus, who's seeking out relationship with Jesus, and Jesus reciprocates and wants that relationship with him too. When Jesus comes to Zacchaeus's house, Zacchaeus says, I will make restoration. I will uh, give away half of what I owe, and I will pay four times as much um, for anyone who, who needs it, who, I'm, who I've wronged. If I've wronged someone, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus says at this point in Luke 19, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And this verse is also used as a theme verse in Luke and many commentaries. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. And it's sort of the, the propositional expression of the metaphor Jesus used earlier about the physician and the sick. Jesus is there as a physician to heal the sick and not heal the well. And the tax collectors know they're guilty. They know they are sick and they know they are lost. So they, they seek Jesus out and the Pharisees um, reject that message and Jesus has to approach them and has to criticize their ways in order to bring about uh, awareness of what his true purpose is. God's purpose isn't to walk around and wonder who's the most righteous. Um, his, Jesus' purpose isn't to walk around and, and label those who, who are doing well and who are wealthy and powerful and, and righteous um, and give them a gold star. The Son of Man comes, Jesus comes, to help those who are lost and those who are sick and who need help. So that uh, is the main point of this parable and, and sort of the main point that I had missed before. Um, and I found this very convicting because I, uh, even now maybe, but especially when I was younger, I didn't make friends very well. When I was beginning to live by myself and I went off to college, I thought that um, isolating myself and focusing on myself and what I could achieve and what I could accomplish, you know, how hard I could work out in the weight room, how hard I could study in the classroom, um, those things would be my, my ticket through. Those things would be the way that I could be successful. Um, but my life really suffered because of that. And I didn't know how to make friends. Even if I had wanted to, I wasn't very good at making friends um, because I didn't believe that that would be a useful thing for me. I didn't see the value in those other people. Um, so once I got to this point and this, this parable, um, it was very convicting to me. And I try my, my best to, to make friends now. I've seen the value of other people. And I've seen how even like uh, getting a bunch of people and going and studying, having a study group will actually help your academics. Um, there is much value in making friends. And Jesus uses relationships and making friends for discipleship to the end of glorifying God. When Jesus comes to the house of Zacchaeus, now Zacchaeus is convicted and Zacchaeus converts and he changes his life and repents. Um, he, he literally turns away from what he was doing and does something else. Um, and how did Jesus accomplish that? By coming over to his house, 
by making and initiating a relationship with him, by making friends with him. So one way that we should disciple, if we are discipling like Jesus does, is to make friends in that way. Use our wealth, use our resources um, to make friends, to help people out. Um, because it could be those people who, uh, in the end, are the ones that, that can testify to our character, who can help us. And in some way, they are the ones who welcome us to eternal dwellings. They are the ones who verify that God has truly changed our hearts, has truly uh, sanctified us to show love and to share uh, compassion like Jesus does. So there are some takeaways uh, that, I, that I bulleted out, these um, uh, things that we can take with us to help us live this out and apply this to our lives. And the number, uh, the, the first one is uh, make the most of your second chance. This proverb is about a money manager who, who's already squandered the wealth. And I think that we can reflect on that in our own lives. We can be like the humble tax collector who realizes that we've done things wrong. We haven't done it the right way. One really great way to, to stay humble and to stay loving is to remember that we survive and we continue to live by the grace of God, um, despite our sin and our failings. And I think that when we keep that in mind, it also helps us be uh, predisposed to help other people when we see them in trouble, when we see that they need help, we remember when we needed help that they can be helped by our love. Our, our strength and our wealth that we can share um, only comes from God's grace. So we're all sort of living on a second chance. So that's, that's the first. Make the most of your second chance. Uh, the second one is, uh, straight from the scriptures, uh, Jesus says this, this phrase, make friends. So the second uh, takeaway is make friends, not money. The purpose of our lives uh, as believers, if you really are following Jesus, you should know that money, you can't take it with you. It, whatever worldly wealth or, or physical wealth that you earn or you gain, you can't, it, it doesn't go with you to the next world, to the next life. So make friends, not money. And I think there is a, a difference between um, just making friends of convenience like the unjust steward. Um, there's a difference between going broke and going for broke when we have an intentional uh, plan to sacrifice and to extend ourselves for other people. It's not always going to work out the way that we thought it was going to work out. You're going to want to help someone out. You're going to try to give someone charity. Have, have you ever experienced that? You try to help someone out and they reject your help or it doesn't go the way that you thought. But that's okay because our approach is to go after those relationships. What we're trying to do is what we will sacrifice for. So if you're trying to get money, if you're trying to make money, you're already sacrificing for that. You're already working towards that. But it works the same if we're trying to make friends. That will become something that we are willing to sacrifice for, something that we are willing to give and, and extend ourselves for. And um, that's this, what this parable is telling us. Um, we should make friends because those friends you can take with you. And that leads me into my, my third and final point is that the currency of the kingdom is people. The currency of the kingdom is people. You can't take your worldly wealth with you. You can't take physical wealth with you. But the point of this parable is that you can take your friends with you. You can take people with you into the next stage and into the, the realized kingdom of Jesus. Um, people are the currency that we can cash out into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus knew that, and that's why he came. He came to seek and save the lost because he knew the lost could be redeemed. Those, those people, those humans that God has made, Jesus knows the value of. And so he can go and he collects them as ugly and as broken as they are because he knows that they can be exchanged. He knows that they can be saved and converted and uh, sanctified. So he keeps his eye on the prize. He keeps his eye on the true value uh, of people. Paul 
in the New Testament actually says uh, something very, very similar. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, like a Pharisee? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And verse two, he says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So cash and money is, is printed out and we put designs on it and we can put it in our pocket and it seems very real and it seems very important. But the currency of the kingdom is people, are humans made in the image of God. And every human that you, you meet, that you see, can be redeemed um, by what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Every human, any human, can be saved by God and, and sanctified by God and made into something glorious and made into something valuable and made into to someone who can commend you and say thank you for making that relationship with me. Thank you for seeing that value in me, even if I didn't see it myself. So I wanted to end uh, the sermon today with a famous passage from C.S. Lewis. He once gave a sermon at Oxford University Church, and uh, it's known as the weight of glory. And so this is um, a passage from the end of that sermon. This is what C.S. Lewis said. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that future glory of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken." It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, whom we marry, snub, or exploit, immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the beginning, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption, and our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parries merriment. Next to the elements of communion themselves, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he or she is your Christian neighbor, they are holy in almost the same way, for in him, in Christ also, Christ truly rejoices, the glorifier and the glorified. Glory himself is truly hidden. So the, the three points are make the most of your second chance, make friends, not money, and the currency of the kingdom is people. Let's pray.